doctors diagnosed cancer and told John Brandrick that he had less than a year to live, he resolved to make the most of the time he had left. The 62-year-old council worker quit his job, sold his car, stopped paying his mortgage, dug into his life savings so he could treat himself and his relatives to an extended to exp expensive restaurant meals. He sold all his clothes for the most part, except for the black suit in which he expected to be buried. And a year later, however, with no sign of the Grim Reaper coming to call, he went for tests, which gave him a clean bill of health. He never had cancer at all. And it says, yesterday the divorced father of two said he faces having to sell his home to rescue his finances and is considering suing the hospital, which mistakenly gave him a death sentence. He said, we have nothing at all after all this. The, though I, and we probably all feel bad for Mr. Brandrick, the story illustrates something that presumption can be a very dangerous thing. It caused Mr. Brandrick to face financial ruin. It can lead even to worse things. And today, we're going to take a look at this topic as Paul leads us into chapter 2 and addresses this issue of presuming. Um, we spent the past two weeks looking at how the human condition is one of living the opposite way to the obvious and natural design God's given us. And today, Paul is going to address those who think that they don't fall under the previous description. Those who presume that it's all right with them. Um, we'll take time to read through this. And we'll start with chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. I'll read that and then I'll read some more as we move through the section. Let's pray. And ask the Lord to address our own hearts with this important truth today. Lord, we thank you that you love us enough to call things as they are for our sake. And Lord, uh, we confess that it's hard at times to hear the truth about ourselves. But we know that you are good and true and loving. And so in your word, you don't pull punches. You address the real situation so that we might find real solutions. I pray today, help us to hear you speak to us individually. And help me, Lord, to be your servant and your instrument of, of proclaiming your word, explaining it as well, in a way, Lord, where, where you can use what's taught to address us all together here. We need to hear from you. And we thank you that you speak through your living word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Romans chapter 2, verse 1 and following. Therefore, speaking of the last sections, therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Romans 2, 1-5, through 5, and that starts us in this section. We will see, as we've already seen in this section, that this chapter addresses presumption. We'll make our way through it and, and learn about the presumptive person. 
We'll learn about presuming things about the final judgment. We'll learn about presuming things about empty religion. Those are the three points. The, the main point is forsake presumption and flee to Jesus. Forsake presumption and flee to Jesus. So first, in verses 1-5, through five, we encounter the presumptive person. Paul now turns the listener or reader, turns towards the listener or reader who's been saying all along, listening to chapter 1, yes, those people, they're, they're really terrible. They're, they're getting what they deserve, and I'm so glad that I'm not part of that group. And so Paul, in this section, now turns his attention to those people, the presumptive person who's thinking that, oh, well, this has all been about someone else, not me. Someone else is that terrible, but, but not me. And he calls out the person, he shifts his use of rhetoric, of language here, and becomes more, in a sense, confrontational. Calling out this person, using the phrase, uh, O man, therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you. And then later on in verse 3, do you suppose, O man? And so he's going after the presumptive person directly. And so he's kind of increasing the rhetoric using more intense debate and confrontation to address someone who would be very strong-minded in their opposition, that idea that they're the man. Now, I think we probably have some strong-minded people here with us today that are strong-minded in their opposition to being called out by this section. I know there's at least one in this room, and I'm going to name him. Paul Buckley. I don't like to be called out. I don't like to be told that there's something wrong with me. And I often presume that I'm great and I'm fine and I'm better than the other guy. So at least there's one here. I suspect there's more than one as well. And Paul's going to press in. And he's going to press into that person and tell them, you, the judge, practice the same things. You're sitting there watching others doing it and saying they're getting what they deserve, but, but no, not me. But Paul says, you, the judge, practice the very same things. We might object at that point. I saw what was in chapter 1. I've never murdered anybody. Never. Never killed anybody. So what, what are you saying when... You say, you the judge practice the same things. I've never murdered anybody. And Paul would say, and Scripture would say, are you sure? Because Jesus makes it very clear that murder is more than the act. It's also the attitude. And that somebody who is bitterly angry with another and insults another human being and calls them derogatory names is doing the same thing as murder makes that clear in the Sermon on the Mount. Wonderful place to better understand why we are also in the same category along with everyone else. Maybe you say, I've never committed any sort of sexual sin. I've never committed adultery. Are you sure? Because Jesus says anyone who lusts after another person, not their own, lusts after them sexually, wants them sexually, has done the same. It's no different. Yes, it's different in the actual act, but the attitude is the same, and you are guilty before the law, just as the one who actually does it. The presumptive person fails to look deeply at their own life. 
in their heart. And to see that they do commit the same sins in their heart, in their attitude. Maybe not in action, but in attitude. And perhaps it's just circumstances and, and other things that are there that are keeping them from actually doing the action. We need only to look at people that have the power to do what they want to see that often they do things others wouldn't do merely because they can and they can get away with it. So Paul is going after us in, in this place where we presume that we're not in the same category, that we're not as guilty. He says, do you suppose, O oh man, that you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them, you yourself will escape the judgment of God? So the presumptive person first thinks that they didn't do it. I don't do it. But then thinks that they are somehow going to have a different experience on Judgment Day. That somehow they're going to escape the judgment of God. The presumptive person think, thinks he is the exception to the rule. And so Paul is going to later on, we'll get to this, he's going to talk about the last judgment. And he's going to correct the presumptive person's opinion of the last judgment. But for now, just see that the presumptive person thinks that they will escape the judgment of God. That the judgment of God is not looming over their life. But it's looming over others. The presumptive person thinks they're in somehow a different category that won't go through that final judgment in that way. The presumptive person thinks that they lead a charmed life. Now Paul is addressing here likely, and we certainly know later on, definitely, Jewish people of his day. So he's been talking in chapter 1 about everybody and probably especially the Gentiles, and now in chapter 2 is starting to address the Jewish people. But this would also apply to really anybody who's presumptive, anybody who's maybe religious and, and feels good about their life and what they've done. And so he's addressing here what looks like the Jewish people, and, and the presumptive man probably thinks he's the exception, he or she is the exception, because of his heritage. He's Jewish. He's part of the chosen people. He's part of the faithful. God has blessed him and his people and will bless him. God will take care of sins. God will forgive. That's his job. But all the while, the presumptive man is presuming as it says, on the riches of God's kindness, patience, and forbearance. They're experiencing blessing from God. His kindness, His patience, His forbearance. They're looking at, at how God works in the world and how God has worked in history. And they're presuming that of course He's going to continue to do this. And, and I have a right to this. Confident of, of His own self-righteousness. And I think we all do the same thing. And we live in an unusual time in history. Life is indeed good, certainly relatively speaking. And God is indeed good in what we see. We have experienced great blessing. We live in a time that's amazing in terms of peace and prosperity. I think this section and this presumption describes the modern American. We live in, in just Quite an unusual time. We've not had a major war since 1945. For some of us, that's your great-grandparents. Multiple generations of relative peace. We have medical treatment for so many diseases and afflictions. Infant mortality has gone from 3% down to 0.4% since 1945. It was even higher before that. Life expectancy has gone from 
40 years, the average life expectancy in 1880, to 80 years now. It used to be that 50% of the population would die from infectious disease. And 50% of the whole population would die before 35. Nowadays, the pre-pandemic rate was like 4% versus 50%. It's gone up to 15% under COVID. But yet, it's still way better than what most of history, most of the world has known. We live at approximately four times the standard of living of 1945. Four times. We have more cars, more stuff, bigger houses, more vacation time, more life savings. Life is good. And we would be asked by Paul here, in light of all these blessings that you have, in light of all these good things, do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and His forbearance and His patience? Not knowing that the whole point of all this is that it might, not, might turn you not to yourself, not to your confidence in our country, not to your own ability and your own education, but instead to the giver of all good gifts who's behind it all. The intention, the point here, and all these blessings is turn, to turn your attention to God. To see that He is the giver of every good gift and the only sustainer of life. And without Him, you can do and do have nothing. That is the point here. Yet, I would submit that we live as entitled people all too often. And Paul has a word here for us. This is meant to be a wake-up call. The word here, and God's kindness as well, is meant to turn us towards repentance. And he would have a word for all of us. Do you presume on these things? Taking God out of the equation and, and, and failing to see His amazing goodness. That He loves you and He's good and He's kind and He's patient and He wants to bless you and He wants to bless others through you and He wants you to ever live in all these gifts giving Him thanks and enjoying Him and seeing Him for who He is. And seeing yourself in light of that thinking, what a, what a terrible person. I can be. In light of all of His goodness, I still do these things. I still forget Him. I still get caught up in myself. I, I still mistreat those made in His image. I fail to love others. How can He be so kind to such a terrible wretch like me? And that's where repentance works. In kindness, we turn to Him. We realize, wow, to sin against such Grace and goodness is such a terrible thing. Please rescue me. Cause me to live in light of these blessings in a far different way than I often do as the entitled one who complains about so much. As the comedian talks about complaining about your airline flight as you fly 35,000 feet, getting thousands of miles in an hour, and yet complaining about that. To turn from those things and to live differently. So Paul addresses such a presumptive person, and I think for many of us, for all of us, I would submit, we are often that presumptive person. 
Paul further warns this presumptive person here and says, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, in light of all God's goodness and how you don't turn to Him, you don't see yourself, you don't turn from your sin, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. We are storing up a terrible treasure of indictment of our lives. By our attitudes and actions, the longer we live, the greater the case against us. We are storing up through a life of presumption a terrible treasure. It's a scary prospect. We, it reminds me of Ebenezer Scrooge. And there's that scene in the movie, or it's in the book, of course, it's in the movie, where, he, where Marley encounters him. And Marley's wearing all the chains. I think we have a picture to show. There's many versions of the movie. And as he's looking at the chains, he's, he's wondering what's going on. And Marley says about Scrooge, you have the same chain, and then says this, it was full and heavy, and as long as this, seven Christmas Eves ago, you have labored on it since it is a ponderous chain. That's what Paul's saying in this passage to the presumptive person. You have a ponderous chain that you have built up over the years as you have lived presumptive about God and His grace. And of course, Paul and God is giving us this in the Word that we, like Scrooge, might hear the warning and flee to Christ. Paul goes on to explain the judgment, the presumption of the last judgment. So let's read that section, 6 through 16, and then dig in. He says in verse 6, He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality, for all who have sinned against the law will also perish without the law. Sorry, all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who did not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Again, Paul is addressing the presumptive person, and that person probably is a Jewish person in his mind. It's, it's rhetorical, but there are actual people, of course, behind the point. And Paul makes it very clear that the final judgment will be for everybody, Jew or Gentile. Everybody will stand 
before the Lord and will be judged by their works. Will be judged by their works. All of humanity will stand and be judged by their works by Christ Jesus Himself. He will be the judge presiding over humanity. The man, the human, God in the flesh, Christ Jesus Himself, will be the judge. And it will be the same standard for everybody, no exceptions. All of us in this room as well. One standard, one way. All of us. And so, this presses in on us the issue of our works. What do our works say about us? Those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, so He will give eternal life. So those who show patience and doing good, looking to glory, honor, and immortality, He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, righteousness, there will be wrath and fury. It's one standard for everybody. And this is reinforced throughout Scripture. This isn't just Paul in Romans 2. Matthew 16, verse 27. I think we have these verses to put up. For the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father, and then He will repay each person according to what He has done. 2 Corinthians 5, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what He has done in the body, whether good or evil. 1 Peter 1, 17, And if you call on Him as Father who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. And Revelation 20, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. The presumptive man needs to know that he will face the same judgment every human being will face. He will not get a pass. His life will be evaluated by the law of God. It doesn't matter if you're Jewish or Gentile. It doesn't matter if you lived under the Mosaic Covenant or not. It doesn't matter what your background is. You will have the same standard. Everyone will be judged by their works. And so we must ask ourselves, are we thinking the same sorts of things the presumptive man is thinking, that somehow I get a pass. Somehow I won't be under the same standard others will. Somehow God will treat me differently in my life than everyone else. He'll be lenient. He'll forgive. That's what He does. Do we presume on things like our church membership as what will get us in? Do we presume on how many good teachings we've heard or how many good books we've read? Do we presume on our orthodox profession of faith? We believed the right things and said the right things. Do we think that performing some sort of perfunctory good works or sacraments will suffice? Are we presuming on the final judgment in some way? We must ask ourselves this question because the Word here presents this question to us. And this section should make us tremble and shake us loose from presuming things we ought not to. It should make us absolutely convinced 
and clear on the final judgment and the standard of the final judgment will be our works. Don't let other things obscure this reality. And I would warn us, as we emphasize rightly, grace, that we somehow obscure this fact that there is a final judgment by works. It's indisputable here and elsewhere in Scripture. I know there's probably lots of questions right now that you're thinking about. Because if you're following the line here, uh, uh, the logic of the text, and the fact that no one is righteous, no one obeys, and the final judgment will be by works, what do I do? Well, hang in there. Hang in there. So there's the presumptive man. There's the presumption on the last judgment. And then there's the presumption of empty religion. Let's read verses 17 through 29 and talk about this. Verse 17, But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and, and know His will and approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, then you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So Paul here is going after empty religion and the sad situation in Paul's day is that many... Jewish people had missed the whole point of the word and the covenants and the covenant that they lived in. Paul himself had missed it until Jesus opened his eyes. He had even had people put to death who promoted Jesus as the fulfillment of Judaism. Everything in the Old Testament, everything in biblical Judaism was meant to lead up to Jesus and then move on from that with, with Jesus. If you take Jesus out of Judaism, you have empty religion. That's what this is teaching us. If you take Jesus out of Christianity, you have empty religion. I would say that if you take Jesus out of anything, that thing ends up empty. It's how it works. He's God in the flesh. He's meant to be the center of all things. He is the source, the means, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit of all things. All things are through Him and to Him. So if you take Him out of the equation, it has to be empty. It's emptied of its core meaning. That's what Paul's going after. And, and the Jews of Paul's day would have rightly understood themselves looking at the Old Testament as those who, who boast in God, who know and approve what is excellent, who are to be a guide to the blind, a light in the darkness. None of those things are bad things, actually. They're all out of the Old Testament. And Paul's saying, you guys understand these things, and yet you're not doing this. 
it's been emptied of Jesus, and so it's incomplete and bankrupt. And, it, and he also cites here from the Old Testament that for many observing them, it was worse than just empty. It was full of hypocrisy and things that were contrary to what they were supposed to do. They're supposed to represent God and His ways, and they were representing something very different to the world. And, and knowing the history, if you read the history, it was really silly of them, given their history and their weakness, to presume on their religion as sufficient. Apart from God, it's empty. Apart from Jesus, it's empty. Apart from dependency on the Holy Spirit, it's empty. And that's what Paul's addressing here at length. Circumcision was a sign of a covenant made with Abraham. That it was pointing to something, the physical was pointing to something spiritual. That was really what the whole core was about. It was about being circumcised in the heart. And so Paul says, here's something that's important that will help us understand some of these issues that maybe are lingering about final judgment in your mind. Verse 28, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. This is very helpful for us to, to see what's here, because if we're listening and we're looking at this so far, we're going to think we're doomed. Because I'm not supposed to be presumptive. And chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3, the first half, all say there's no one righteous. And final judgment is by works. So I, I don't have plea. So, I don't understand. What's Paul doing? What about the rest of the story? Well, he's going to get there. And we'll get there, too. But he's dropping some key hints here that help us understand, and this is part of that. We'll we'll get to all that. We'll unwrap it together. But he's correcting this idea that being a Jew is a matter of outward things. It's a matter of ancestry or physical signs, the letter of the law. It's an inward thing. And when it's an inward thing, such a person praise is not from man, but from God Himself. For the true Jew, his praise is not from man, but from God Himself. Now, just so you know, by the way, the Old Testament is full of examples of true Jews, true believers. Um, there, There are many, many Old Testament saints. This isn't denying this, but it's speaking to those who who think that the outward matters without the inward. And true believers actually are described the same way. So I think you're going to hear some of the resolution of your questions. Deuteronomy 30, early on actually, God speaks about this. And He says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. So there's a promise that God is going to circumcise your heart, that you might live. And then Philippians 3 says, speaking of believers, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Colossians 2.11, in Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And such people, going back to Romans 2, receive their praise not from man, but from God. Now, remember that chapter 2 
in that section especially is addressing the final judgment. So when it says they receive their praise not from man but from God, where is that happening? At the final judgment. So the true Jew, the truly heart-changed person at the final judgment is not receiving a sentence of damnation and just sentence, but a commendation by God Himself. And so that begins to answer things. Now, earlier on in verse 7, it says, those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, He will give eternal life. That connects in with this too. So, do such people exist? Are there people who will be rewarded on the final day? Are there people whose works will lead them into eternal life? Or be part of that? Whose works will commend them on the final day is probably the best way to put that. Yes. Romans 2 says that. It, it hints at it. But more specifically, we can look elsewhere. Let's just look at Matthew 25. Jesus is teaching, verse 31, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then will He sit on His glorious throne. There it is. Final judgment, right? Before Him will be gathered all the nations, every single human who has ever lived from all over the globe throughout history. And He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. A metaphor we don't get, but that's what they did. They separated the sheep from the goats. Jesus is using that. It's going to separate the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, the sheep, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. How does Jesus judge? on the final day by what they did. And these people fed and clothed and cared for others in Christ's name. Now, just to note some things in this teaching, they come in and they're already sheep and goats. They're already sheep and goats at the judgment. And Jesus separates the sheep and the goats. And then he says to the sheep, Come you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. They're already sheep. Matter of fact, God has been preparing a reward for them before they ever existed. That blows our, should blow your mind. But that teaches us something. And how do they get identified as sheep? By what they did. Their lives show it. And it would have been imperfect and incomplete, but there was something there. There were actual works of service in the name of Christ. And those are the good works, true good works. For If a work is not done ultimately for the sake of God Himself and all His goodness and glory, it's not a good work. And when these works are done in His name as His sheep, they are truly good works. And that is how the sheep are identified from the goats. 
That is how this works. This reality that judgment is by works for everybody, for believers. And believers are called to live lives that are full of good works. It'll never be perfect until you go to be with the Lord. That's never said. It'll never be complete. But they are genuinely good works when we do them in the name of Christ, dependent on Christ. Paul's going to get to this later on in the book. Chapter 6 and chapter 8 actually are a lot about this. So chapter 6, he says, uh, verse 17, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. This is a believer freed up from the old ways to, to be a slave, to be, to be bound to what is righteous. And then in chapter 8, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for our sin, He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. They cannot do good, truly good works. Thank God they can do things that are partially good and good for one another, but truly good. No, they cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. And so that goes back up. The righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So the believer, by the power of the Spirit, does do good works. That's important. Now, I went way ahead of what Paul's saying here because I want to help relieve the tension that's in the room <laughs> everyone has. Oh no, what's he saying? I'm not coming back here again. I wanted to answer that. But Paul doesn't do that for a while. He, answers, he leaves hints, and then he brings resolution, and then he'll go to the fulfillment of it. But I wanted you to see that so that you can rest easy, Lord willing, tonight. But I don't want you to rest too easy because this context, he's going after the presumptive person, right? He's going after the presumptive person that's in each one of us. That we might look at ourselves honestly, humbly, and realize, I'm in trouble. To identify with a presumptive person. To not look ahead and think, yes, grace, and he'll work in me in such a way that I'll look enough like a sheep that I'll get in. To not get there, part of how you get there is by doing the honest work of looking at your own heart and saying, where do I presume about my own life? Uh, how many here know, and excuse me for using the term, how many here know what a Karen is? I'm sorry, Karens. I, I, I know Karens. I'm related to Karens, and I feel badly for Karens. But it's not a nice term, right? And it, it, it's out there. It's an Internet and social phenomena that's out there. Typically, a Karen is a self-righteous, indignant woman usually white and middle-aged, and she's often recorded self-righteously judging others, often non-white young people. So the one in Central Park where the woman called the police on the nerdy African-American birdwatcher guy because said that she was, he was threatening her, which wasn't true. 
Um, the other woman who uh, just about attacked a, a young African-American African man who actually was from famous parents, accused him of stealing her phone when she had left it in the Uber. Um, those are examples. Now, don't get me wrong. This behavior is reprehensible, and maybe the whole Karen phenomenon, apologies to Karens again, uh, will somehow accomplish some good in making us more aware and curb such behavior. But let me submit to you that I think we all enjoy watching Karen videos a bit too much. I don't know what it is. Maybe it makes us feel better about ourselves. I would never do that. But let me ask you, have you not ever done that? Have you never been a Karen? Have you never been, have you never falsely accused someone else of something? Have you never been indignant at somebody who really had done nothing wrong? Had, have you never acted like you're entitled to special treatment? Have you never belittled someone else who you thought lower than yourself? I have. I've done all those things to my shame. And so Romans 2 is meant to make us realize that you and I are all a presumptive person. To look at ourselves honestly. To do the hard work of being honest with our need, our, our, our bankruptcy, our sinfulness, our pride, our presumption. But again, that is given to us so that we might go to the cure. That we might look at the problem and see it honestly and we might forsake presumption and flee to Jesus. And so once again, I'll finish with what we see in chapter 3. As Paul answers this, we are to flee to Jesus because it says in chapter 3, verse 10, as is written, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. But now... The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, are counted righteous, are imputed with the righteousness of Christ given the righteousness of Christ, credited with the righteousness of Christ, by grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ. Christ Himself is the only one who was righteous. He fulfilled all righteousness. He can stand on judgment day entirely clean and righteous and worthy. He alone was perfectly humble. He alone loved others purely and fully to the point of death, even death on a cross. He then went to that cross to bear the holy justice of God for all the presumptive people like you and me. All who would run to Him by faith. And He offers His righteous life on our behalf to atone for our sins, to satisfy justice, to credit us with righteousness. Now, through simple faith in Him, being joined to Him by faith, simple faith, not a work, just dependent on Him, we are counted righteous. And then Paul's going to get to in chapter 6 and 8. Not only is righteousness imputed to you, but through the life of the Holy Spirit in you, through the life of Christ in you and among you now, the righteousness of Christ starts to show up in your life. 
and you look like a sheep and you grow step by step, one step back, two step, one step forward, two steps back, two steps forward, one step back, so forth, back and forth, but you are growing to look more and more like Jesus. And so on the final day, through Christ alone, His righteousness alone imputed to you and working out through your life, you will be with the sheep if you put your faith in Him. And He will say, that's a sheep because that looks like a sheep. That looks like Jesus, however imperfectly. So in conclusion, forsake, flee from presumption, and flee to Jesus. Let's pray.